Amen. If you're able, will you please stand for the reading of God's word? Today's sermon will be, sermon text will be 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 6. So 2 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 6. Now I, Paul, myself, urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am meek when face to face with you, but bold toward you when absent. I ask that when I am present, I need not be bold with confidence with which I propose to be courageous against some who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And we are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray once again in preparation to hear from God's word this morning. Heavenly Father, we now ask that by the power of your spirit, I will deliver this, your truth, to these, your people. By the presence and power of your spirit, we ask that you would sanctify your people. For anyone here who's unregenerate, for anyone at home watching or perhaps listening in days to come, we pray that you would cause this, your word, to grant life to their soul. For Christ's sake, amen. In the 19th century, the great London preacher, Charles Spurgeon, started a, a publication known as the sword and the trowel. It was an extension, really, of his pulpit ministry. His goal was to use it as an opportunity for, and I'm quoting, urging claims of Christ's cause, of bearing witness for the truth, for the revival of godliness, and, this is a big and, for denouncing error. A sword for battling the enemies of the Lord and a trowel for building up the church of the Lord. Symbols taken from the book of Nehemiah and the rebuilding of the wall after Israel's exile. The point being, the faithful ministry of the church of Jesus Christ is twofold. It's for building and for battling. For building and for battling. Led by men who are committed and courageous. Beloved, faithful gospel ministry must be engaged in, you, in utilizing the means of grace that God provides for building up his church and fighting off the enemies of Christ's church for the glory of God. That is what we see the Apostle Paul doing with the Corinthian church. This morning we begin the last section of this letter known to us 
as 2 Corinthians, Paul um, wrote at least four letters to the Corinthians, two of which have been included in the canon. It's what we know as 1 and 2 Corinthians. Um, the first section of this letter, that is chapters 7 or 1 through 7, is for the most part Paul's defense of his apostolic ministry. In Paul's absence, um, false teachers arrived and began to undermine his ministry and apostolic authority. In chapter 1, Paul explained there that there would be a postponement of his promised visit to the Corinthians. And that was due to the fact that his first visit, which he refers to in chapter 2 and verse 1 as his painful visit, Things didn't go well in the first visit. There were serious problems. Some of the congregation had come under the sway of these false apostles engaging in mutiny against Paul that required discipline, required church discipline that was not taking place. And um, those problems were unresolved by the time Paul left. So while he was away, he he sent a letter to them. It was known as his severe letter, which is now, of course, lost to us. But he stated in the letter that he would visit them after they had responded to that letter that was delivered by Titus. Now, by the time he's writing 2 Corinthians, that severe letter had mostly accomplished what he wanted it to. It brought forth godly sorrow that leads to repentance, chapter 7. So now Paul is preparing to visit the Corinthians once again. Okay, So that's chapters 1 through 7. The second section of 2 Corinthians is made up of chapters 8 and 9. Uh, We just completed those chapters last week. Well, chapter 9 anyway which consists of Paul's encouragement um, to the Corinthians to give generously to an offering being collected for the sake of the suffering Christians in Jerusalem, that is in the church of Jerusalem, who were um, under persecution. And that collection, known as the collection, started in Macedonia. So he he encourages them to to, um, follow through in their promise um, to give. Chapter 10 now begins the final section of 2 Corinthians, and Paul now goes on attack. He he wages war on the remaining enemies in that church. This is a direct, strong, and even sarcastic attack. He recognizes and analyzes what is going on theologically in the church at Corinth, And what has happened, quite simply, is that a very worldly way of thinking has infiltrated the congregation there. It has gained a foothold through these false teachers, which Paul sarcastically refers to, we'll see when we get towards the end of this letter, as super apostles, who were no apostles at all. They were charlatans. They had slithered in. 
amongst the people. So Paul takes aim at this enemy and now um, announces his battle plan. But if you'll notice that he, he begins with humility. Look at verse 1. Now I, Paul, myself, urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am meek when face to face with you, but bold toward you when absent. Now that's one of the accusations that was made against him by these false teachers. So he sarcastically refutes those false apostles, and you see that explicitly pointed out in verse 10, for they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal, his personal presence is un, unimpressive, his speech contemptible. Look, Paul is a hand-picked apostle of Jesus Christ, called by Christ on the road to Damascus, vested with the authority of Christ to write scripture, to represent Jesus on earth among his church. Now, he could have started this section with, look, I'm an apostle of the, of the Lord, called by Christ, and I demand right now, and then boom, lay down the hammer. He could have, but he did not. Instead, notice he invokes the humility of of Christ. The, the fact that the power of salvation comes through apparent weakness. He who was rich, chapter 8, became poor. From out of glory comes the Son of God down to earth into the womb of a woman and then lifted up on a cross to be crucified, slaughtered by man, receiving the wrath of God in the place of sinners like you and me. He who was rich became poor. That's humility. Accomplishing our redemption through the most unlikely means of what seems to be weak. The shame of crucifixion. So we now, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, have this treasure, the gospel treasure in earthen vessels. That is, we hold this treasure in broken clay, weak pots. Why? So that the surpassing greatness of power will be of God, not from ourselves. So, don't attempt to entertain the masses. Preach the word. So, meekness is not the absence of resolve or forcefulness. We see in Christ that meekness is not weakness. It's power under control. That's what meekness is. Humility, the humility of Christ. Meekness is like a, a, a well-trained horse giving a child um, a gentle ride, power under control. So he approaches them with, with the humility of Christ because um, the, these charlatans are, are sowing seeds of discord, um, saying that, you know, um, Paul, um, he, he's meek when he's present, but so bold when he's away. Verses 9 and 10, they say, you know, by letter, he, he's terrifying, he's strong. You know what he is? Let's use the word of our day. He's a bully. 
Paul's a bully, but when physically present, look at him. He's unimpressive. He's contemptible. He's of no account. He's timid, and he's feeble. I urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am meek when face to face with you, but bold toward you when absent. Truth is, he opposes these false teachers and their dangerous false teaching with humility that is woven together with absolute confidence. And in verses 2 through 5, he describes the nature of his confidence. He boldly and confidently calls them out explaining that, that these charlatans do not understand what true spirituality looks like. Remember, they, they, were, they were into to, um, being showy. The Corinthians loved it. They were like hyper-spiritual. They, they thought that the, the, the more they act like a lunatic, the more spiritual they would appear to be. So Paul addressed that in the first letter. So they're drawn to these kind of charlatans, this kind of nonsense. Remember, they love to glory in men. They've been swept off their feet by, by polished rhetoricians who cruised into town even though they were preaching a false gospel. Swept away. Newsflash. Good speaker does not automatically mean good preacher. These men were measuring Paul by their own false, twisted, perverted standards. Hyper-spiritual lunatics. Paul's presence is um, unimpressive. His speech is, is not commendable. He's not a skilled orator. So there was division in the church, remember? I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Peter. And the super spiritual ones, well, no creed but me, no creed but Christ. We don't need teachers. So Paul, he rejects their accusation by making a play on words here now in verse 2. I ask that when I am present, I need not be bold with the confidence with which I propose to be courageous against some who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. In other words, I'm the apostle, yes, and I lead a real human life, but not according to the flesh. He doesn't lead like worldly leaders do. And more than that, he says, we don't wage war according to the flesh. Now, with these words, Paul, in effect, is declaring war upon those who would stand against Christ, who would stand against the authority of Christ, who would stand against the church of Jesus Christ, letting them know he sees his life and his ministry as warfare. Warfare. Yet, he has no intention of fighting on their terms. So he confronts these false teachers with divine power. Look at verse 4. For the weapons of our warfare 
are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful. Okay, Paul is not going to stoop to their level, engaging in lofty speech, innuendo, deceit, and trickery. He's not going to uh, retaliate with weapons of this world. Ephesians 6 tells us we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. This, this isn't a, a war fought with, with, with forcible means, right? You don't, you don't fight this war with, with force and fists, you know, bombs or missiles or guns. The weapons of our warfare were listed in Ephesians 6, from which we read earlier. Truth, righteousness, gospel confidence, faith, salvation, past, present, and future, which is, which is, Justification, sanctification, glorification, past, present, and future. Sword of the Spirit. Sword of the Spirit. All woven together with prayer. This is what God calls us to employ when engaged in warfare that's spiritual. Amen? Now, if a man lays his hand on my wife... He's going to be knocked out cold. But we're talking about spiritual warfare here. Amen? Amen, you would do the same. I hope. So often, Christians in our day, the Church of Jesus Christ, try to employ weapons of the world to stand against forces of spiritual darkness, and sadly, we're seeing it once again in this presidential election cycle. Christians who talk more like worldly politicians than they do kingdom-minded Christians. Witness? Don't do that. You Facebook people. These Christians are posting stuff, and they talk like politicians, man. Get the gospel in there, somehow. I had to call a friend of mine out the other day on the little Instagram thing. I said, look, we we must understand that in order to see spiritual victories, we must employ spiritual weapons. This is what he's after. Because the arch enemy himself is Satan who from the beginning operates to deceive. That's how he operates. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the, the schemes of the devil, the tricks of the devil. He works to cause you and me to question God's word all the way back from Genesis 3. Has God really said? There are professing Christians who claim that Genesis chapters 1 through 3 are not actual history, but allegory. Guess what? They're deceived. Deceived. I'm not saying they're not saved. They're deceived. Paul is not speaking allegorically when he says what he says in the next chapter. Look over at the next page, verse 3. I am afraid that... As the serpent deceived Eve by his his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Look, 
The moment one is brought to true saving faith through the revelation of the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit, you will also believe that the devil's real. And when you see how the Bible depicts him, you'll have no problem whatsoever believing that he has the power to make a serpent speak. For anyone to argue that Genesis chapters 1 through 3 is not history or parts of it are not history, you will eventually find yourself in a contradictory position with regard to the gospel. Because if the first man, Adam, is an allegory, then guess what? The second Adam, Christ, is also an allegory. What do you do with that? The contrast of Adam, the first Adam, and Christ, the second Adam, runs throughout redemptive history. It's not an allegory. The first Adam was given life. The second Adam gives life. Look at it, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 45. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam, that's Christ, became a life-giving spirit. Verse 49, just as we have borne the image of the earthy, that's the first Adam, we will also bear the image of the heavenly, second Adam. Why? Only because of the glorious gospel that, that comes by way of apparent weakness. Apparent weakness. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. It is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who comes to believe. First Corinthians 2, his first letter, chapter 2, he said this, When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with the superiority of speech or earthly wisdom proclaiming the testimony of God. No, no. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. God's power in humility, the humility of Christ, Paul approaches them to wage this war. Look, Satan, who hates Christ in the gospel, look again at chapter 11. Notice what he does. Notice his art. Verse 14, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Satan is crafty. His, his means of deception, friends, is not showing up looking like a ghoul or a goblin. That's easy to detect. Amen? He works to appear as an angel of light. Through what? False truth claims, false religion, heresy, subtle religious lies. A little truth is okay. Otherwise, it's too obvious. Heresy. And notice how he does it. Look at verse 13, chapter 11. He does it through men who are what? False apostles, deceitful workers. They also disguise themselves as apostles of Christ. <laughs> Satan's servants, verse 15, also disguise themselves 
as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. The depth of outer darkness, which is frightening enough, just outer darkness, hell. Imagine being a false representative of Christ, misleading God's people. Look out. Satan has always worked through men to gain a foothold in the minds of people. We understand this, beloved? To gain a foothold in the hearts of men, to get people to apostatize. Look at children. Satan will work to get you to apostatize. That is, one day you're going you're to grow up, you're being trained in the word of God. You're being trained with the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's the way, he's the truth, he's the life. No one comes to the Father except through Christ. You will be tempted to believe there are other ways to God. And to apostatize is to walk away from what you now profess, what you now believe. That's the apostasy. You'll be tempted in that. We pray, that's why we pray for you, that God will hold you to the end, that your faith is real, that it's true. Satan works to cause division within the church. He loves division. He wants churches to, to split. He wants pastors to quit. So our response is to take up the weapons of our warfare and fight the good fight in the strength of Christ and the power of his will. Amen? I'm a little fired up today. When I see people who call themselves Christians fall prey to lies, to false doctrine, it ticks me off. It infuriates me. But let us not forget who the true enemy is. Every true church, every true church will come under attack from time to time. Every Christian family will come under attack from time to time. Every individual Christian will come under attack from time to time. So Paul wants the Corinthians to understand this is exactly what he's doing against these false teachers and their competing truth claims. Taking up as he did the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, that's how you fight against falsehood. We must be, become skilled at using the most important weapon that we have. We have to know how to wield the word of God, the sword of the spirit. You know, just like some people are accomplished at using, you know, actual swords, and some people are really lousy, and when they use them, it becomes a danger. They become a danger unto themselves. <laughs> Chopping off fingers or stick it in their leg or, you know, whatever. So, too, many Christians are, are very inept at handling the word of God, the sword of the spirit, truth. Thus, we must read to know what it means by what it says. You, you, you can have memorized a thousand verses all out of context. <laughs> well, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You know? Climb Mount Everest in a t-shirt and tennis shoes. I can do it in Christ. You're a fool. The context of that is to be able to suffer for the sake of Christ. 
There's no book of hesitations or the book of imaginations in the Bible. Amen? So we must read to know what it means by what it says in order to properly wield it. Because the battle's for the mind. The battle's for the soul. It's for the heart. And the only way to conquer that is with the weapon of the gospel. Verse 4. Weapons that are divinely powerful for what? For the destruction of fortresses. It moves, it works to destroy fortresses. Okay, so when Paul here talks about warfare, he is not portraying open warfare warfare on a battlefield. Okay? He's not doing that. The battle that he describes here is one of attack, not on camps or lines of soldiers, but siege warfare. Siege warfare against fortresses, against strongholds, verse 4b. So children, what's a stronghold? It's a rampart, a a, a wall, a thick wall, a barrier wall, which would have been known to the Corinthians because above the city was a fortress, above their city. It was a place built out so that if a city was laid siege to, they could run behind the walls, making it difficult for enemy forces to reach them. So a siege, children, is when soldiers surround a walled city. Just just think of four walls, large walls, uh, three, four, five, six, some eight feet thick, very high, And a city is within. To siege a city was to surround the city in hopes that you could cut off supplies to the people within the city or who make up the city to starve them out, to get them to surrender. Then you take over the property. But siege warfare was long term. Most cities are well equipped for the threat of a siege back in biblical times. So siege warfare was a long-term commitment. Um, When Rome sieged um, Carthage uh, two centuries before Christ, history tells us that it took two and a half years. Now Jerusalem that will be destroyed in 70 AD, was destroyed but will be from Paul's perspective, right? During the siege of Jerusalem in 70 AD, historians tell us that Rome set up long-term camps around the city. They had areas designated for eating, for, for washing, for doing drills, right? For practicing. There were ovens, storage pots, drains, trash pits, latrines, that is bathrooms, public, they made bathrooms for themselves, um, a wagon park for horses, or lines for horses and a wagon park for the, the, the wagons that they pulled. And they even set up a forge, a blacksmith shop. Desmond Seward, um, in his book, Jerusalem's Traitor, comments about what it was like for Jews when the Romans began to stage their siege. And he writes, quote, Watching from the ramparts of Jerusalem, 
the defenders were horrified when they saw besiegers starting to erect what looked like three small cities around Jerusalem. And one of the chief weapons used by the Romans to crack open a fortress was the battering ram. Battering ram. Seward writes, quote, It was a huge bulk of timber like the mast of a ship. Its end fitted with a massive piece of iron in the shape of a ram's head which was slung by ropes from scaffolding on wheels, repeatedly pulled back by a team of men, and then hurled forward. The iron head could demolish many sorts of masonry. They'd bring it back like this. End quote. Not the bringing it back like this, but... (laughs) We're told that the blows from the battering ram in 70 AD were so powerful that it shook not only the stone itself, but buildings inside of the walls, a distance from the wall. So after they broke through the first walls, double wall in Jerusalem, they started pounding on the second wall. Josephus tells us that to break through the second wall of Jerusalem, the Romans hammered away with their biggest battering ram for days. Days. In the movies, I, sh- I, you know, it takes two minutes and they're through. No, it t- took days. Boom, boom, boom. Dozens, hundreds, thousands of times. Pounding the stronghold. The battle that Paul must destroy here is the fortresses that have been raised up against the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 5, we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we're taking every thought captive to the obedience of of Christ. So with humble confidence, humble confidence, Paul declares war on every false way of thinking and living that is contrary to Christ. Friends, that is our war. That's our war. It's not against people. It's not against flesh and blood. It's against ideologies. It's a war against ideas and ways of thinking that are contrary to the way of God in Christ, and no one can know God apart from Christ, regardless of what they claim. You cannot know God apart from Jesus Christ. There's one mediator between God and man, and it's the God-man, Christ Jesus. Every unbeliever, every unbeliever remains an unbeliever in Christ because he or she has ingested opinions and arguments that make the rejection of Christ seem right, reasonable. That's their fortress that they hide behind. It 
So these are beliefs, these, these are ideas, these are opinions that have been bought into, and they serve now as a fortress that they hide behind. They're trapped. They're not being protected, they're trapped. We get it? It keeps them from knowing God. Look at 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4. In their case, in their case, the God of this world, who's the God of this world? Satan, hello, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now, some of the arguments that provide fortresses for unbelievers, well, there are many, um, one of them is atheism, right? And then, of course, there's the foolishness of buying into the theory of macroevolution. Because it sounds so imposing to some. You know, nobody times nothing equals everything. Oh, brilliant. You call yourself a scientist? Again, science is only science when it's scientific. Now, others who aren't so gullible, they're not gullible enough to, to claim that God does not exist. They try to fashion God according to their own preferences. They try to create God in their image rather than realize they're made in God's image. They must repent and believe or they will perish. That's their fortress. There are the false religions that serve as fortresses. The false religions of Islam, Buddhism, Judaism, and every other ism. Yeah, Judaism's a false religion. Right? You reject God's Messiah, it's a false religion. Now, now people say, well, why should I believe in Jesus, your Jesus, when there are so many, you know, religious options? We all just want to be morally upright, correct? I mean, isn't that what it's about? No. Christianity is not merely a way of life or some spiritual experience, right? It's not merely that. The Bible isn't, isn't just a book about, you know, uh, um, Declaring some good morals to abide by. You know, another path of morality. That, you know, it all leads us to God in the end. That's a bunch of nonsense. You're being deceived. The Bible is first and foremost a truth claim. It's a truth claim that comes from God. It is historic. It's the unfolding of, of God's redemption fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The Old Testament promises the coming one, the Christ. Now, perhaps you're one. Perhaps you're here. Perhaps you're at home. And you, you have inwardly adopted ideas to keep you from believing and embracing God through Christ. Right? Ideological walls that have been built up that set you in opposition to God. Maybe that's you today. And let me tell you this. You think like that, you act like that, you reason like that, that is a wall behind which you retreat. That's the wall that you're behind right now. And let me tell you this. If Jesus Christ was not raised from the dead, neither you nor I should be a Christian. Right? 
throw the Bible away. Because the one promised to come was promised to conquer sin and death and to be raised the third day. Throw your Bible away. The last thing you want to do is become a Christian. But if he was raised from the dead, you must be a Christian. You must repent and believe or you will perish. You will go to hell. So Paul challenges the Corinthians and us to examine the work of God in history with regard to the finished work of Jesus Christ by utilizing God's word as a weapon. You know, we, we can mix metaphors here. Uh, this weaponry is the sword of the spirits, the word of God. Um, it, so the word serves as a sword, but also as a battering ram. The more we read it, study it, and know it, the greater arsenal of truth that we have stored up in our minds. So that when competing truth claims arise, and they will continue to arise, we're able to examine all of it through the filter of truth. Is that how you watch the news? Or do you regurgitate the sayings of the day? We're notice, we are destroying arguments, speculation, and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So the, the weapons of our warfare, uh, is, it's not a white flag, Right? To raise and surrender and bow to the pseudo-religion of cultural inclusivism. Have you bowed? It's not to compare ourselves with others. It's not to raise up our own standards, you know, and erect, you know, multicolored signage in our front yards to show how inclusive we are. You're a fool. You've been duped. Fool. It's not to find our worth in our family, our heritage, our accomplishments, or our talents. It is Christ's prophesied and fulfilled victory over sin, Satan, and death. The gospel. It's what he has accomplished through his life, through his death through his resurrection, through his ascension, the one who's the only way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. Period. Christ came to become the object of God's wrath while he hung on the cross to rescue us from God's wrath. Do you think some man invented that? God becomes a man to do what we cannot do in order to save us from his punishment? And he punishes his son in, in our place? Who can make that up? His worth, his, his word, his truth, his divine power raises the dead. It resurrects dead souls. It gives life. It's called regeneration. That's the reason Jesus said, Nicodemus, Unless a man be born from above, born again, he cannot see the kingdom. You'll never understand unless God does the supernatural work. How does he does the supernatural work? He does this, this supernatural work through his means of grace, proclaiming that truth. 
not hiding from it, not watering it down, destroying arguments, speculations, and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of the one true God through Christ alone. That's it. Unbelievers are dead. You were dead. You were blind. I was a dead man walking the streets, blind as a bat, who was raised in the church, dead. Until one day, by reading the gospel, hearing the gospel, yeah, I rejected it many times. One day, at his appointed time, he raised me from the dead, caused me to believe. The means by which he does it is the proclamation of the truth, the battering ram, the battering ram, the battering ram of truth against strongholds. So how do we herald this word? How do we wield this, this sword? How do we launch this battering ram? There's a way. Peter gives it to us. 1 Peter 3, verse 15. In your hearts, it begins there. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect. Why? Because we possess weapons of divine power. So, you, you know, you don't have to put them in a chokehold or pound them in the forehead. You have a reason for the hope that lies within you with gentleness and respect. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. To destroy. The word destroy here um, is a compound word. And again, it means to pull down. Pull down. We pull down arguments and every high opinion lifted up against the knowledge of the one true God. Pull them down. And you begin within yourself. If thinking rises up in your head that is contrary to the word, pull it down. In other words, repent. I do it all the time. I'm always having to repent in my mind. I don't want to tell you some of the things that run through my head when I watch the news. I don't want to share that with you. God sees me. I'm an open book. So when it rises up with the word, I pull it down. How do I pull it down? How, am I, how do I know how to pull it down? Because I know what the word says and what it means by what it says. It starts there. Now, another way that the word works used as a weapon here in verse 6, is that um, those who profess to be Christian and, and refuse to obey God's word will receive the um, other edge of the sword, so to speak. It's called church discipline. Church discipline. One commentator points out that what the Corinthians have erected against the fuller knowledge of God, Paul knows he must pull down as part of his spiritual siege warfare. Bring it down. So verse 6, and we, we are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience, Corinthians, is complete. So in other words, when he arrives, when Paul arrives in Corinth, if the rebellious minority does not repent, he will carry out church discipline which is part of the faithful use of the word of God. Amen? 
to confront, to, to heal, and to restore. The goal of church discipline is restoration, ultimately. Amen? So the discipline in view here with Paul deals directly with these false apostles that slithered into town and those who had become rebellious to the truth under their sway. So Paul is saying, whenever the church is mutually agreed, that is to repent, your obedience, when it's complete, in other words, when everybody who's true to the gospel takes his or her stand, it will be clear then when I arrive who the rebels are. You see that? It'll be clear who they are, and I'm going to act. So again, our first metaphor we open with from Spurgeon, the sword, that's, the church, that's church life, the sword and the trowel. You build up and you battle. So when I arrive, okay, I'm waiting that your obedience is complete so that the rest will be exposed as the obstinate, those unrepentant delinquents, and we'll deal with it. So make sure your obedience is complete. The enemy will then be exposed. Right? So Paul says that his ministry looks like spiritual, divinely empowered, long-term siege warfare. What did Jesus say? I will build my church and the, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, we often make the mistake with regard to the meaning of those words. We don't read that correctly. We think that the church is in the defensive mode. That's not what he says. You know, as though the church is holding off attacks of Satan. We misread the verb prevail. So it sounds like hell is on the attack. But gates and fortresses, say, of a castle are what? Defensive. The gates of hell, keeping people in unbelief. They're defensive structures, and Jesus is saying, it's not hell and its minions on the move, it's Jesus Christ and his kingdom that's on the march. Siege warfare, and even the gates of hell won't hold the church back, because I'm building my church, said Jesus. The battering ram is coming, so don't buy into false doctrine because it sounds soft. Preach the truth in, in love. It's all about presentation. Sometimes you can have great policies and really bad presentation. In other words, Paul was not satisfied with merely having a breakthrough with the people he ministered to. He knew that ministry required follow-through because people are easily prone to deception. Amen? Working with the trowel with one hand, with a sword in the other. That's how they rebuilt the wall in Nehemiah's time, right? Like this. <laughs> That's the work of the church. Faithful ministry of Jesus Christ is twofold, of building and battling. So Paul's ministry to the Corinthians was one of patience, amen? Great patience, but also it was one of persistence. 
Willingness, here it is, beloved, to wrap up. Willingness to do the same thing over and over and over again. It's the battering ram of truth. Boom, 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 thud, thud, thud to break down fortresses. That's why we do this. To build up and to tear down. To build up God's people and to tear down wrong thinking, wrong doctrine, heresy. This is how we deal with our children. Parents, you're never going to stop preaching the gospel to your children, whether they're 3 or 33. Because they're going to go out in the world and they're going to start listening to this lunacy. Unless they're rooted and booted in the truth, they may be just kind of swept off course, if not swept away. So when they come home from college... Instead of being their best friend, when they think wrongly, you love them enough to give them the truth, the battering ram of truth for the walls they've built up. So Christ's true church is willing to come back to the same biblical truths again and again and again from the pulpit. Those who don't, they'll eventually leave. Farewell. Right? Farewell. Because Christians, true Christians, know that these truths must be applied persistently. Satan is crafty. He's a schemer. To break down strongholds built up within the hearts of men and women. So Paul is showing us that faithful church ministry is not quick and easy. Amen? It's not quick. It's not easy. It's long term. It's hard. It's difficult. It's challenging. Which makes the metaphor of siege warfare so appropriate. Friends, Christ is laying siege to this world. And he has been from the moment it rebelled against him. From the time of Abel to Noah, to Abraham, the children of Israel, to the apostles in the church of Jesus Christ to this day. He's calling his elect out. The battering ram of his truth will destroy all strongholds and he'll call them in and unto himself. That's why the whole counsel of God must be declared because he's conquering the hearts of people and he will continue to do so. By the way, his gospel, and he will destroy every standing stronghold. He will throw down every high opinion lifted up against the knowledge of him, because one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, those in heaven and those in hell, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So he's already lovingly taken you captive. Aren't you glad? You've been taken captive by the conquering king, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he continues to capture those who are his. So let us do our part and join him in this siege warfare and remain faithful to the end. Amen? Lord, we do thank you for your truth. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the uh, ministry of the Apostle Paul. Thank you for our ministry here and all true gospel ministers and ministries, congregation. We pray for them. We lift them up to you. Um, give them um, great strength, great wisdom, great discernment, 
um, in, in a time, the time in which we live, which seems as though you have lifted your hand of restraint and, and turned lunatics over to themselves. Help us, Lord, um, to be the salt and light that we are with the truth and to see siege warfare for what it is and how the gospel applies to that for the, the glory of the name above all names, Jesus Christ. Amen.